Welcome to the Lucky Let Cord Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you on November 10th. Autumn's kicking in and we are ticking out the days in quarantine, getting ready for this weekend's start of the Nitto ATP Finals. And speaking of those Nitto ATP Finals, we have a special guest today, one of the most unique voices in the sport, one hell of a broadcaster. That is Robbie Koenig, who's currently commentating for Amazon Prime UK, former ATP double stalwart. A lot of you people may not know this about him, but I was just looking at Robbie's stats. Three semifinals at the Grand Slams in mixed doubles. Aussie Open 2001, Wimbledon 2001, US Open 2002. Also a number 28 ranking in men's doubles, five ATP titles in doubles, and a semifinal in doubles at the U.S. Open in 1998. So the guy could play some doubles tennis, clearly. We didn't talk about that today, unfortunately, but we did talk about the ATP Tour and some of the big storylines in 2020, starting with the big three, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and a little bit of Roger Federer. Then we work our way down to Dominic Thiem, Andre Rublev, Daniel Medvedev, and even talk about some of the young rising forces in the game like Yannick Sinner, Lorenzo Musetti, Carlos Alcaraz. So a really interesting and wide-ranging discussion with one of the prominent voices in the game. So thrilled to have time to spend with Robbie Koenig. And you guys, I'm sure, are thrilled as well. So why don't you kick back, grab a beverage, and listen up to the interview now. Robbie, it's great to speak with you. I am so honored. And I just learned your nickname is China. But I don't even know what to say about that. How are you today? <laughs> Good, Chris. Um, yeah, a lot of people call me China. It's a bit of a South Africanism. You know, in Oz, they say mate. In America, they say buddy. In South Africa, they go, how's it China? So, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Um, I'm in London at the moment, Chris, uh, getting ready to finish off the season at the World Tour Finals. So, um, very glad that... Uh, We've got some tennis played because uh, I really am addicted to the sport and I'm so glad for the players and for, for, for those of us who are in the media that, that we're getting some tennis done. Yeah, exactly. My sentiments exactly um, turned out to be an okay season. We got a lot done and we saw a lot of great tennis. Absolutely. Uh, I would have signed for that if you had told me um, when Cincinnati in the U.S. Open was due to be played that we'd get as much tennis in as we, as we would have done. I would have signed for it in a heartbeat because there were so many ifs and buts around whether even those events would take place. And I think had Cincinnati and U.S. Open not gone well, there might have been a knock-on effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did a nice job over there. They were really tight with the bubble, and you get some complaints, of course. But, hey, stuff happened. Dominic Team came away with a title there. So we got a lot of stuff to talk about ATP-wise, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm really excited to get into it with you a little bit. Why don't we start big picture? And big picture means big three. Um, Rafa, Nole, even a little bit of Roger. Um, what do you make of the seasons that these three men had, and um, how do you think it sets them up for the future? Well, Djokovic almost a flawless season until his episode in the U.S. Open, and I think yeah, obviously that we all know that through a, a spanner in the works. Um, but I was just having a look at, at the points accumulated from 2020, Chris, and he's uh, leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else. Yeah. Um, and I'm just talking purely only 2020, almost 6,500 points. The next guy is Dominic Team with 
3,800. So I think it speaks volumes for, for Novak's consistency again. It's mind-boggling some of the numbers that he's posting and the consistency with which he's doing it in the biggest of events and you know across different surfaces as well. And it took one extraordinary performance from Nadal yep. to, to beat him at the, the French Open. And I liked his chances. I really did. I think the matchup's a good one. But, I mean, if you had to get into the nuts and bolts of that match, I really think the set was decided, and perhaps even the match, in, you know, the three-love game and the four-love game. They were massive games. They could have made that first set much closer, and I think it would have changed the whole dynamic of the match. But, you know, I think I'm dying to ask Rafa this question, uh, if I get to interview him in London, um, as to whether that is one of the best matches he's ever played yeah. uh, on a clay court, because I think it's as close to perfection, given the opposition, because that's the important part, Chris. Yeah, that's... It's a good point. I think I think there's a little bit of a bitter taste in, in the Djokovic, Djokovic mouth after not claiming either of those last two slams. And of course, we know what happened in New York. Um, but still, the rankings milestones that are coming are, pre, are pretty clear and indicative of what kind of effort he's put forth once again in 2020. I mean, the sixth consecutive or uh, the sixth year end number one finish. And now he's closing in on Roger for the all time record of weeks at number one. Pretty amazing stuff. It is. And, and this guy's. You know, he's put it out there that he, he wants to break that record of weeks at number one and hold the most majors when all is said and done. Um, some people don't like the fact he's putting it out there. That's what motivates him. I have nothing against him doing that. In fact, uh, I think it's quite good because it really makes you, you know, you want to walk the walk. And um, he's doing exactly that. But I think he's going to be tough to beat for the next three or four years because his his dedication to every aspect of the sport is its just incredible. There was a lovely chat the other day with uh, that Tim Hinman hosted with him and Sampras. Yes. Um, and you could just hear him, how he's, he's dedicated every inch of his life to being the very best. And it was a nice discussion between the two of them. Pete spoke about how you know stressful it was to eventually get that six year in a row um, season ending number one and you know those two relating to each other and Djokovic you know even more so I think in this day and age it could be argued that it's it's even tougher to do yeah pretty wild and um you're looking at um you're looking at a future with a lot of a lot more maybe major titles for Novak Djokovic and then you've got Rafa who of course proven himself on the clay will be a factor but what about Roger Federer I mean we haven't heard from him in a while he sort of did a similar disappearing act in 2016, after his loss to Milos Raonic at Wimbledon, I think it was 2016, and came back and started winning Grand Slams when nobody expected it. Can he possibly do something like that again? Um, you know what? I've always said, it's a line I've used in commentary, that Roger Federer will stop winning majors when Roger Federer stops playing in majors. And especially on a grass court, uh, we know how dangerous he is on that particular surface. I think it's going to be a little tougher on clay and the hard courts with Novak around. Yeah. But, you know, Novak comes up against somebody that he doesn't like, perhaps a Pablo Carreña or a Danny Medvedev, and, you know, one of those guys knocks him out on a hard court, and suddenly, you know, you like Roger's chances against just about anybody else. But I think on on any other surface other than a grass court, it is going to be tougher for him. And I always ask people this question when we have this discussion, Chris. I said, if it was all the money you had in your bank, and you had to bet whether Federer will win another major now or not. Mm -hmm. 
then you get the real answer. Because it's easy to say ifs, buts, and maybes. But for me, I would say there's less chance of that happening yeah. from here on. Yeah. yeah. Maybe something breaks. If he builds some momentum and then gets on the grass at Wimbledon, might need a little help from the draw. Certainly possible. Was close in 2018, but we haven't seen him. We don't know what, what he's going to be like when he returns. It's going to be very fascinating. I think you'll agree with that. Totally. I mean, we saw what happened in the U.S. Open draw, right? You know, something bizarre happens. And um, not that he needs something that bizarre to happen, but it can. Uh, you just never know. Mm. Let's turn the page and look look at a player who's kind of coming up the ranks right now. Russia's Andrei Rublev, the ATP leader in titles and in victories this year. I think he's 40 and 8 right now. Made all kinds of progress. And, and I want to ask you, because... It's hard for me to tell what he's doing so well and why he's able to win these matches. I mean, some of this stuff stands out. The way he strikes the ball is pretty pure. But why do you think he's had this jump in success in 2020? Um, I'm going to rewind. I think it all started in Cincinnati last year, Chris, where he forgot to enter the tournament, signed in as an alternate in qualifying. Let's just be clear that qualifying, folks. And then goes into qualifying, beat Roger Federer along the way. And I think that really sparked... This belief, he played well at the end of the year. I think he, he won in Russia again. Maybe it was Moscow. Um, so tail end of the year actually finished quite nicely for him. Um, but for me, it's it's playing the big points well. You know, I've gone back this week as part of my homework for the World Tour Finals to, to watch matches that have been close with some of these guys, and in particular Rublev, um, and to see what he's doing well. And it really is... The margins are so ridiculously thin and thin in the sport. You can't believe how many matches this year have happened where guys have had match points and and lost, or vice versa, guys saved match points and won. So you're talking about, you know, one point here or there deciding the outcome of a match. And um, so it, it's so important that you play those big points well. And he has really done that exceptionally well. You know, against Felix Auger in in the finals, I think it was in uh, it was that. Um, I'm trying to think now. Hamburg, down 5-3 in the third. Excuse me, no, sorry, that was Sitsipas. I'm getting a little yeah, yeah. Uh, up here. Um, but it might have been in Adelaide where he ends up saving, ma- uh, has match points of his own to win in straight sets in the second set and then goes on to lose that set, but then has the mental fortitude not to get down on himself and ends up winning you know, after having match points, you know how mentally strong you've got to be to do that, Chris. When you've had match points, haven't converted, you think the the match should be over, it's not, and you've still got to compete. That shows me that this guy is incredibly strong between the ears, uh, and he continually speaks about it, how he needs to get better between the ears. And you hear that same rhetoric coming out of the mouth of Daniel Medvedev. And it's fascinating that both guys have had such good progress in the last two years, and both are working extremely hard on the mental side of the game. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I, I know he he's a big fan of Rafa, and he, he wants to be that have that sort of mental game, that ability to sort of deal with the stresses of matches and and to just be positive out there all the time and just keep working towards the goal of of winning points. And you, and that's a great point you make. It's the margins are so thin, and if he's able to to conquer these challenges mentally that can make a big difference and it, it certainly has and, it, and he's not always blowing people off the court but boy has he won a lot of matches this year I mean five titles including the three at the 500 level which are nice but do you think he can how important is this experience coming up in London he's got a few wins against team he's got the win against Federer that you mentioned 
Do you think this is just a place for him to cut his teeth and maybe get this big match, big stage experience and take it forward? Or do you think he can really do some damage? Mm, I think it would be, it would be unkind of, of kind of me to say he can't do damage given how many matches he's won. His confidence must be sky high right now. Um, you know, if he's in the same draw, same group as Schwartzman, I like his chances. You know, the only guy that I really see him struggling against is either Nadal and Djokovic. Those are the only two. I think that's what makes it fascinating in London is that I think the other six players will all think they've got a legitimate shot of making it through to the semis. But um, I think given uh, if his first match is a good one in London, if he plays somebody where the matchup is decent, I like his chances because then you feel part of the occasion. You don't question yourself whether you actually belong here. Let's say he loses his first match easy to a Jocko or a Nadal. Then you can ask questions straight away because it's the first time in such an event. But if he gets off to a decent start, man, I would not be surprised if he's if he's one of the last four. Just given how well he's played the big matches and the big points this season. That, that is so standout for me, Chris. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, why don't we stay on the subject of Russia right now and Medvedev? Um, I think people maybe were a little critical of him for the way he performed throughout the season, although myself personally, I thought I saw a lot of good tennis from him, especially at the U.S. Open where he reached the semis without dropping a set. Didn't get any further there. But this week in Paris, it was really nice to see him doing what he does best, which is just, I don't know, the, the type of tennis he plays to me is really entertaining and really unique, and, and I feel like it, there are times when he can just be unstoppable. He almost goes into that Djokovician mode, doesn't he? <laughs> Where he refuses to miss. He and again, he, he spoke about how much he's been working on mental toughness. And if you can get yourself to that place where it doesn't matter what's happening or who was on the other side of the court, um, you're going to outlast them. It he suddenly becomes an extremely tough person to beat. We saw it in the finals of the U.S. Open. Uh, and what a great summer, but I thought the combination in the U.S. Open, coming from two sets to love down against the greatest competitor our sport has ever seen in Nadal, told us a lot about Medvedev. And actually, if you watch the final of Paris, he was struggling to find inroads into Zverev's game and to to almost outpatient him and just fine-tune enough to win that second set. Um, it just shows you how tough he is because he just ran away with the third in the end. You looked at both guys and you could sense it was only going to be one uh, one winner after the first two games in the decider. So incredible resilience, incredible, um, I think he's got self-belief, emotional control. And, you know, I think this is a guy who, you know, he's still a young man. He's going to be around for many, many years. And, and whenever I hear players so obsessed with process, not being results-driven, but process-driven, uh, I always take note. And that's what I'm I'm seeing at the moment from Zverev. From Medvedev, rather. Excuse me, you, from Medvedev. Excuse you, me. You, you think he's got a... I think he's got to be a future Grand Slam winner. How about you? Um, if I was betting all my hard-earned cash on it, like I said to you a little earlier, I'd probably go with yes. Yeah. Um, he's got to be good for one, especially... You know, the two that are played on the hard courts in, in Oz and the U.S. Open. Yeah, cool. Um, um, another guy that, that showed a lot of fortitude in Paris is Hugo Humbert of France. 
Typical, yes. difficult left-hander to face and, and really played some strong tennis and showed a, a pretty good mental game as well. Do you have some thoughts on him and his performance there? I have a lot of thoughts because I was lucky enough to be in Auckland when he won that title there. Okay. And, you know, I'd done a fair bit of homework on him prior to that that event. And, and if you just scroll back two, two years to 2018, you'll see that this is a guy who almost played 100 matches that year and built this massive foundation for the rest of his game. I think he won something like 68 or 69 matches, um, spent basically one year playing the challenges in 2019, and he was on tour straight away. And I think, again, that's always a barometer for me. When somebody goes through the gears that quickly, Chris, it's stand up and notice. And especially in Auckland this year, the manner in which he won that finals against Benoit Paire, winning it in a tiebreaker. Your first final, winning it in a tiebreaker in the deciding set against a guy who is, you know, he can be so destructive on the other side of the court, just getting inside your head mentally, taking breaks when he shouldn't, talking to you in the match, talking to him on the change of ends at three all in the third set tiebreaker. You know, he's, he's a major disruptor. And I thought the way Ugo dealt with all of that, uh, I just thought, man, this guy is destined for a great year, and, and he hasn't disappointed. Um, you know, we had a chat with Greg Rizetsky in the studio before um, he played that epic match against Sitsipas in Paris, and I said, listen, Greg, I've watched a lot of this guy, and, and I like his chances. I think he's going to go on to win here. Um, and, and Greg was blown away by how good he is. And, and it's not news to me. The kid's going to be a top tenner, but I've already said it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. He, he has a really disruptive game. Uh, tough off the serve. He can really swing that can opener lefty serve out wide and take guys far off the court. Um, but but then, um, you know, he moves well. He does a lot of things well, and, and he's a little bit unorthodox. But, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to him. Of course, the win over uh, Oji Aliasim at Wimbledon kind of introduced me to what he's capable of in a big match that was out on court two at Wimbledon in a third rounder where I think nobody really had him pegged to win that match and, and since then I've been really watching him closely I think he can do some damage at Wimbledon as well yep no question with that lefty serve the way the way he flattens out the backhand and the forehand when he wants to inject pace into it and his decision making you talk about good decision making under pressure he makes better decisions in the biggest moments than you know, a lot of the guys rank between 5 and 10 in the world. Um, and that's what impressed me so much when he beat Tsitsipas in that deciding set tiebreaker um, in Paris. But, you know, of of all the characteristics, perhaps the strength, again, between the ears is what stands out for me. You talk about a guy who's qualified from the neck up, man, because that's one of the things we always question when we discuss French players, Chris. You know, somebody like Monfils, on his day, he's great, but he's very in and out. Songa, you know, the guy, when he's engaged, he's fantastic, but he has his days where it almost looks like at the talent of a match, he doesn't really care enough. Gasquet's a little soft. Benoit Paire's crazy. <laughs> um, you know, I think he, he's got the best of, of all the uh, of, of all the French characteristics. Lovely flair, but not too much, but good mental, um, you know, strong between the ears. Moves well, moves very efficiently. Um, his off the ball movement is so good so his anticipation means that he's he's always there half a step ahead of his opponent so too many good characteristics at such a young age to, to not excel Yeah, and you mentioned a, a really long year and a lot of wins on the challenger circuit which is going to segue me into another topic which are young players 
that are started, sort of making their move this year. And uh, we picked out four names, uh, Sinner, Yannick Sinner, Lorenzo Musetti, so the Italian duo there, and then Carlos Alcaraz. I know he's a guy you want to talk about, this young Spaniard who's doing a quite a bit of damage on the Challenger Tour, and also Brandon Nakashima of the United States. But let's start with Alcaraz because this guy's been tearing it up on the Challenger circuit and looks like he's, uh, he's just 17, looks like he's going to be a real good one. Yeah, 17, and he, and he looks like a man mountain already. So, yeah. of course, he's got the huge advantage of that, uh, you know, that athletic ability, and, and that's serving him well. I think he started the year with 14 straight wins at um, at the lower level in the futures, but he, again, he's made his way through the challenges so incredibly well, winning in Trieste. You know, he had that epic semi-final battle with Lorenzo Massetti, um, who's been on everybody's radar for a number of reasons. Um, great standout junior, the way he plays the game. Um, I think the two of them are going to battle for, for many years to come. And I think you've got a nice contrast with um, with the two Alcaraz being very typically Spanish. Um, no frills to his game, just does the basics extremely well and just a phenomenal competitor. Whereas with Massetti, you know, he's got the flair of the single-handed backhand, creativity. The forehand is so loose. Um, you know, he's got the rock star looks as well to go with it. Um, you can just see Dolce and Gabbana signing him up tomorrow. Yeah, he looked good um, in his GQ spots there that, a couple of weeks ago, right? <laughs> he did. But, um, you know, the way that Alcaraz performed at the Challengers, I think I think it was uh, there was another one in Cordenon where he made uh, the finals as well. Um, this guy's already shown us that he belongs with the very best start of the year, almost 500, and I think he's finished it uh, just inside the top 140. So Amazing. I can see him being a – I wouldn't be surprised if we have a full calendar next year if he's not a top 50 player by the end of the year. Really? And speaking of top 50, that's where Yannick Sinner is already. This kid was, what, um, about 500 two years ago at the beginning of 2019, and he's just like – he acts like he's he's been there, done that. He really does. Um, the guys, again, he's not your typical Italian. He's from the, the northern part of Italy. So, he, you know, that, that influence from Germany and Switzerland, which I think s serves him well. He is, he's got an uh, incredibly good team around him, I think, with Riccardo Piatti, uh, who's been there and done it. You know, he's got a lot of people in his ear, like Ivan Lubacic as well, who's very close with Ricardo. So I think very important when you're young, Chris, to surround yourself with good people who you can trust. And I think he's got the firepower. You talk about movement being a crucial ingredient in the sport. He has got it in spades. Um, and elastic energy with his backhand and forehand that is such a rarity these days. He can generate incredible pace. Um, here's the downside. I mean, as I'm saying these things, I'm thinking, you know, where the holes in his game? There are very few. So um, Alcaraz and Mercedes are going to have to deal with him too. Yeah, these, I mean, do you, it looks like all these guys, it's hard, to, it's really hard to say with Musetti and Alcaraz who really haven't got a lot of tour experience, but do you think you can say from what you've seen from Sinner, I mean, just really 20, 30 matches on tour that he's, he's, he's pretty much a ringer for top 10 and like the, I mean, the future looks pretty bright, but it's hard, but it's hard to say though, right? You know, Chris, yeah, nothing's given, but, um, you know, it's our, our jobs as, as analysts and pundits to, you know, educate the people out there as to maybe why we think they're top 10. I think it's always important that we back it up with good reasoning. And, and that's what we, we're trying to do here 
is just you know explain to them the nuances of of what makes them so good and it really is for all these um these guys it's it's the sum of the parts the way they're able to put them together, you know, Massetti in Rome this year when he had that fantastic run beating the likes of Stan Wawrinka along the way, even though it was Stan's first tour-level event in a while, he just showed incredible maturity. And I think it's so important when you're young, if you have big wins early on in your career, the amount of belief it gives you that you belong. Yeah. I think if you take a little longer to eventually break through you never had quite have the same level of belief like those guys who do it when they're really young. Um, and, and I think it's important to, to make that point. You think, you think Sinner can make a push? We, we don't know what the, what the tour is going to look like next year in terms of what tournaments are going to happen, how bad this pandemic is going to be, but it looks like he can make a push top 20, top 15, who knows, next, even next year. Oh, totally. Again, you know, the guy can play well on different surfaces. Um, I think the body looks robust. Mm-hmm. I don't see the body breaking down too much, um, given the efficiency of the movement. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's if he's not knocking on the door uh, of the top ten when we're having this discussion in twelve months' time. I'd like to see him and Novak maybe in a ski race. Yes, come down the Italian <laughs> Alps or something. Uh, too true. Where do we sign up for one of those? <laughs> that would be fun. Um, let's see. There's a few other topics I want to discuss before I let you go. And thank you for your time, Robbie. This, is, this has been enlightening, as I expected. No, it's an absolute pleasure, Chris. Um, it's always good to catch up. Yeah, very cool. And Dominic Team um, won the U.S. Open. It's pretty massive. I mean, I don't know if, if people want to put an asterisk on it or not, but the fact is that Dominic Team is now a Grand Slam champion. And what I want to ask to you is, do you think this was a big step for him? And do you think he's now sort of like a member like, like, kind of like Andy Murray membership of the Big Four type of like, is he going to be threatening for all these Grand Slams? He's clearly proven he can play on hard courts. So Clay and Hard, it looks like he can be a threat at these majors. Do you think this confidence that he's gained from his success on hard, from his U.S. Open title, is taking him to another level here? Definitely. Um, you know, I think that kicked off when he won Indian Wells, beating Federer for his first Masters 1000 title. Um, that's given him an enormous amount of belief. And again, it's the manner in which he's won that one tight at the end, beating you know, a legend like Roger. That'll just grow your belief like, like you can't believe. I thought the match that he played in the finals of Oz against Novak was one heck of an effort. You know, To take Novak that close on, on a court in Melbourne Park that he's made his own, again, he would have been disappointed that he'd lost that one, even, even how good Novak is in Australia. Um, and then he wasn't going to let the U.S. Open get away from him. The fact that, you know, from two sets to left down, he's come back to one at seven, six in the fifth, just tells you everything you need to know about Dominic Team. And in fact, I was just just having a look at it for our for our listeners, Chris. Um, you know, he played he played three hours and forty two minutes against Zverev in the semifinals of the Yaws Open. He played four hours and two minutes against Zverev in the U.S. Open final and against Djokovic in the Australian Open final. That was almost four hours. So this is what team is capable of. Um, I'm sure many people will remember the pictures that we once saw of him when he was training in the woods with that guy that 
a guy that looked like a, a pretty mean dude yes. making him carry dogs around. And, you know, that's that's the image I always have of Domi. He's always prepared to go the extra mile. And I think we saw a lot of those efforts come to fruition this season. People see it in isolation as one major, but we know we're inside the game that this is, you know, 20 years of work that have led him to come through, you know, in what was it, four hours and two minutes to win his first major. Yeah, tremendous effort to come back. I mean, a lot of people talked a lot of things about that match, saying it wasn't the type of Grand Slam final they had hoped for. It was low quality. But to me, there were some, some amazing elements of that match. And, and, of course, first and foremost is him coming back from, from the brink, from being down and out. He found a way, which, um, yeah, you're right. It tells you a lot about what he's capable of. This guy is such a beast. Isn't he just? Um, and such a good guy as well. I think, you know, I've, I've always found it very difficult to marry those two um you know, those two traits, <laughs> Dull does it so well. I know when I was playing in my days, I just wanted to kill the guy on the other side of the court. If he just looked at me the wrong way, I wanted to fight him. But still to be so combative on the court, but then so well-mannered and respected off of it, I think it's such a wonderful trait. Mm. It sounds like you're, you would expect him to have a strong season, maybe a strong uh, ATP finals, of course, and then maybe maybe a strong season, maybe maybe finally get that Roland Garros title and be the guy to knock Rafa off his perch um, at, at some point. If not next year, maybe some year, right? Yeah, um, I'm hoping he will have a, a good run um, at, uh, at the World Tour Finals. I mean, you know, the first couple of years he struggled. And then suddenly last year, you know, made it to the finals, lost 7-6 in the third to Sitsipas in that unbelievable match. But uh, you've got to remember that he beat Federer and Nadal in his group. I mean, excuse me, Federer and Djokovic in his group last year. I think his, his win against Djokovic was 7-6 in the third. So um, I think he's garnered a lot of confidence after his results there last year. So it's always nice when you can go back to a place where you've had some, some recent success. Forget about those first four years, um, uh, first three years when he didn't play particularly well. Uh, last year was a good one. And, you know, he's, he's well-rested. He didn't play Paris, played Vienna, lost pretty early there. So he should come into London feeling pretty fresh, Chris. Mm -hmm. That'd be nice. And you know, a couple, couple rapid-fire questions to throw at you um, just on the whole season in general. Who's your pick for maybe the guy who's made the most improvement this year? Hugo Mbe, without a doubt for me. Yeah. The Frenchman yeah, he, gets it. He does. Um, I think, you know, top 20 wins. I think, you know, he's had more than somebody like Sitsipas when I was looking at their head-to-head. -head. Um, you know, Sitsipas is a top 10 player. And Sitsipas on points alone accumulated this season as number seven. Mm. So that's why I'm, I'm so big on him there being a top 10 player. This is, you know, in, a, in an incomplete season, he's having more wins against top 20 players than he has losses. Yeah. Pretty remarkable. Player mm -hmm. that's paused for, poised for a big splash in 2021. Big splash. I am going to go with, I think, one of those youngsters. I'm going to go with, wow. I've got a soft spot for Lorenzo Massetti because of the single-handed backhand. Mm. Uh, the smart money's on Sinner, no yeah. question. But I think it might be... Carlos Alcaraz. He's, he's going to come from you know, deep in the rankings, around 130 at the start of the year. And I think he's going to announce himself to the world, uh, the tennis world, on the main stage in, in a big way somewhere. 
that would be nice to see. Mm, it really would be. I mean, it's incredible the production line coming out of Spain. Um, just they do the basics so well. They couple that with uh, an incredible attitude, and you know it's a simple formula. And when you've got somebody like Nadal, who is your role model, it's only going to help. Only mm-hmm. help produce stars like him. And and is he? Correct me if I'm wrong, but is he coached by Juan Carlos Ferrero? He is. You're spot on. So again, you know, surrounded by good people. His dad's been influential from the early years as a tennis coach. Yeah. So he, you know, the Spanish like to keep things tight knit, and they're very good at sharing information. But again, to have somebody like Carlos on your bag, you're practicing with so many great former players as well. Um, it's just the perfect scenario. Mm. You know what's funny is a little bit off topic, but I was worried that tennis would struggle the men's game after the big three, big four kind of, you know, phase themselves out. But now I have the utmost confidence that tennis is going to be in, in great hands. Like looking forward to something like Shapovalov, Tsitsipas, Dominic Team's still going to be around. Then these four guys we talked about, it, it's it's never ending. We're blessed. It is. And, you know, in Tsitsipas, you've got a guy who looks like a rock star as well. Hopefully uh, Lorenzo Massetti starts to make some Big waves, 2021. He is such a cool kid. In fact, my son played against him in a, in a futures event earlier this year before we had the COVID. Really? Um, so that was pretty cool. He, he got a lesson, but it was fantastic for my son, who's just 17, to see what the level, um, what the level is that's required if you want to go on to do decent things. So that was a, a cool personal experience for me to to witness. Yeah, that's awesome. And the last question. Who do you think, who's been your most entertaining player to watch on the men's side in 2020? Um, it's probably going to go to Dennis. Um, I'm a big fan of the way Shapo plays. It is just so electrifying, the, the pace of the shots that he has off both sides, the athleticism. It's so raw. It's not as refined as somebody like Novak's. I love that. Uh, I'm enjoying the way his, his game is evolving. He's looking to come in more. I played well on the clay this year, considering you know it's probably his least favorite surface. He yep. had his chance to be Dago Schwartzman in Rome. Great I match. Thought, one of the best matches. A, yeah, it was one of my best matches this year. Um, so I think it would go to Dennis. I love the fact he's playing dubs too. You know, looking to to work on his net game as much as he can. Uh, such a dynamic player, good personality as well. Um, I mean, how can you not like the guy? Yeah, that's a great call. I, I'm a little surprised by the call, but um, it, to me, it's perfect. He's so uh, acrobatic to watch. If you catch him, as you know, you catch him on these slow-mo replays, his body is contorted and angled. He, he almost, I wouldn't say he reminds me of Djokovic because they have different styles, but they do appeal in that same way where their bodies just contort and they're just kind of freaks athletically. They are. And, and like I said, the difference between the two is Novak is so refined. There's a rawness about the way that that Dennis moves that I, that I find cool and that's so appealing. Mm. Um, and, you know, he's hip. I like the fact he's hip. He's, he's trying to rap uh, a little bit and do different things, put himself out there. And I think that's good. If you can take yourself out of your comfort zone with some of your hobbies, um, I think that, that adds to your, your belief when you're on a match court. I think it's not easy to do things that are out of your comfort zone and to see a young guy um, tinkering with those, big props to him. Mm-hmm. And, and lastly, what do you think he's done – in my opinion, Dennis has had a great year this year. I mean, if you're looking at it stride by stride, he got the U.S. Open quarterfinal. I think his met the, the strides he made in his mental game were huge, and he referred to his sports psychologist, a guy by the name of Vadim, that helped him immensely. And I think 
he fell short of finishing the year in the top 10, but to me, it's an incredible success. I just wanted to see what do you think he did well and what impressed you? And then what do you think he still needs to do maybe next year to kind of move up and, and be playing in London next year? Yeah, I was just having a look. Um, I was having a look back actually of that match in particularly uh, in particular in Rome against um, Schwartzman, you know, four all in the third. He's got break point at, at 30-40 and he's got a, He's coming on a great approach shot. He's got a relatively easy volley, but he ends up being heavy-handed there. The lob goes up. He doesn't put the smash away. And Diego hits an incredible half-volley back-end winner. And, you know, for me, just he's got to play the big points a little bit better. I think he should be breaking there and certainly for the match and finding himself going deeper in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that third set tiebreaker, I think, if memory serves... Um, from four all in that third set tiebreaker, he makes three forehand unforced errors to lose the match. So incredible tiebreaker up until that point, but when it matters most, that's where I think he's got to improve in the mental department. Mm-hmm. Um, he can't be losing those kind of points because we've discussed how fine the margins are. And of course, you know, the closer you get to the summit, um, the finer they, they become even more so, Chris. So I think if he can just fine-tune mentally, uh, show some good decision-making, um, he will be in a he'll be a regular top ten. I think it's important to note that he did touch uh, the top ten in the rankings, but yep. hasn't finished the season inside the top ten. So again, another nice milestone for him, and it'll give him more incentive to work harder in the off-season. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Be a little bit of a shorter off-season this year, but. I guess guys have to head to Australia early, um, but uh, yeah, it's going to be crazy. So, and by the way, he's still an alternate for for London, so we may see more of him. I mean, I was kind of saying goodbye to his season after his loss today in Sofia, but I realized well, maybe he's got a chance to play a few more matches. Yep, Time too true. Time yep, Robbie, Absolutely. this has been awesome. I, I'm so happy to get to speak with you because, like I said, you're on Prime now and not on my tennis TV, so I haven't seen you as much this year, and I think a lot of people feel that way. We love you as a broadcaster, um, and it's always nice to, um, well, for me personally, it's great to have you to chat one-on-one like this today, so thanks for your time. I see. Uh, absolute pleasure, man, and uh, you guys do such a good job on tennis now uh, always uh, picking up on all your tidbits of information it's so succinctly presented so uh, keep up the good work man i'm gonna try enjoy the world tour finals and uh, we'll talk with you soon thanks chris thank you this edition of the lucky let cord podcast is a wrap special thanks to robbie koenig for joining us special thanks to, to robbie for giving that little plug to tennis now at the end i love that Appreciate that, Robbie. Um, you guys can find us on social at facebook.com slash tennis now on Twitter, which is where Robbie likes to hit us up. That's at tennis underscore now. And you can also find us on the web, www.tennisnow.com. And most important, find this podcast wherever you like to listen to your podcast, including Apple Podcasts. Just go into the search bar there, type in Lucky Letcord Podcast. Voila, dial us up. We'd love it if you rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. It would mean a lot to us. I want to thank you guys for listening. Enjoy the rest of the 2020 tennis season. Stay safe and stay proud.